Hello and welcome to Dragon Bites, the paediatric podcast aimed at paediatric trainees or anyone interested in child health. I'm Asim, one of the paediatric trainees here in Wales and one of the presenters for Dragon Bites. This week we continue our two-part series on the biopsychosocial model. If you haven't had a chance yet to listen to last week's episode, it might be worth popping back and having a listen to that first. As a brief reminder, Two of our Dragon Bites hosts, Dr. Tom Cromarty and Dr. Kellen Kenny, were joined by Dr. Max Davey, a consultant community paediatrician based in London. They were discussing the biopsychosocial model and how we can apply it in our day-to-day practice. Anyway, let's get started. I just think there's so many there's so many presentations that come in even to the emergency department you know adolescents uh with syncope or presyncope or yeah abdominal pain yeah there, there's so much that comes in that uh and and that kind of environment is meant to be geared towards kind of quickly see them get them sorted yeah. out and sometimes i find that a challenge um when there's like you say more, more than six when there's 20 to be seen and there's only you and there's 20 more after you've seen this one and if you spend an hour there then you know it's it's difficult but actually you know that in the long run this is their one time when they've come to hospital the first time and it's going to be six months before they come again and and so much goes into what could happen to the family and what could happen to the family unit in that time. Yeah I mean you don't have to spend an hour it doesn't always take a long time. I think in a way, so, so the two things about the time that I would say, one is it doesn't necessarily take as long as you might think once you get used to it. And once it is in, once it's not, the thing that often takes time is when you've started off down the biomedical approach and you've kind of done some stuff and, and excluded some stuff, and then you make that transition to biopsychosocial because the family are like, oh, so you don't think there's actually anything wrong. You think it's all in their head because that's why you're making this shift to biopsychosocial. If as part of your initial approach, you go, well, you know, we always say, obviously, you know, we're looking for pathology, but obviously thought, you know, what's happening in your life and what's happening in your, in, in, you know, in, in, in your, your feelings and emotions are always important in, in all, in all, you know, kind of in, in all um, uh, uh, symptoms. And actually, it's not impossible that you could get other people, other, you know, nursing, nursing colleagues and other colleagues to actually start getting some of this information as well. That's not, you know, that's not beyond the realms of, of, of a possibility, is it? And, and, and just, it, it doesn't have to be a kind of, oh, let's go in deep, you know, let's go deep now, let's go deep into your psyches. It's basically what's going on for you. Is there anything else going on for you that we think we could maybe change or, or kind of influence that might help? So with the colicky baby, you know, the fact that, mum's got post you know mum's got depression and you know they're in this horrible house that with noisy neighbors and they're having all of these stresses of course that's going to be important it doesn't mean that you can solve it but you're like well yeah that needs sort that you know that is a factor that's that's important that's not it isn't just this baby and this kind of unknown biological process going on it's just opening up a little bit of a box and I think in emergency it is very difficult you can't actually resolve these things but what I hope my hope is my kind of um slightly um naive hope is that if everyone is a bit biopsychosocial and actually gps are pretty biopsychosocial that if if that seed has been planted that there's more going on here next time they go to their health visitor or their gp 
if everyone is a bit biopsychosocial, then it will, it will grow. It doesn't have to be just on one person to come up with this brilliant formulation or story for the family. It, it can happen across different across you know different professionals. The difficulty is actually there's quite a lot of people who who, who just can't be bothered, <laughs> who just want to get in and get out. Um, the second thing to say about time, so I, I know I said two things about time. The second thing to say about time is as a service as a whole, taking this approach, and again, this is something I'd love to be able to do an audit of, but I think it's so difficult to kind of um, capture, but you could potentially do it in a particular patient group is, you know, it seems obvious that you that you should be able to do fewer exam fewer um investigations you should be able to keep them in less long if you if you find out what's actually going on um and you you know and you manage their anxiety and you and you kind of divert them to the, the right places to actually manage their situations um i mean there is you know there is evidence that um it, particularly in, in in recurrent abdominal pain that you know managing their you know psychological management of their underlying psychological distress reduces reattendance to to take one example so as a as an individual it is an investment of time but i would argue that it, it is an investment of time that is worth it for the system as a whole although as an emergency department doctor it's hard for you to make that argument <laughs> in at two in the morning on a on a sunday so i get you know it's it's not easy but i would just make those points I suppose just with that specific case, like colic, and more generally, those parents, you know, are sleep deprived and so entrenched with kind of what's going on at the moment. Sometimes I think just asking those questions, do you think might at least <laughs> open their eyes to uh, the fact that there are multiple issues going on that can yeah. be adding into this and then, you know, that they might be able to just that just knowing that they exist means they might be able to do something about them. I think that's right. And it depends on the parents, but go on. Yeah, and I was just going to say parents are a massive protective factor for these children as well. Yeah, and and I think. Um, so you're. I'm a person who's interested in neonatology, (laughs) um, and I'm and I'm just thinking: is there a way? Do you think that I can? Well, not the royal eye. Um, could bring this into um neonatal follow-up because obviously these babies are going home and usually these are high risk um Mm. of neglect these patients anyway and often it's the preterms that end up coming to the community pediatricians um so is there a way that this can be adapted to that well you could just use it i mean you know i think you've got you don't have to write out a grid every time you do it but you can have in your mind that you know if you have for instance a particular problem that the child the family is having that the the, the mother's mental health and the housing situation and the the nature of the relationship with the partner are all valid things to think about when you're thinking for instance i don't know i thought thought of a feeding problem because that's a very common post you know post neonatal unit problem isn't it establishing feeding at home um you know that you've got to talk about those things rather than just the mechanics of well you know is the baby able to kind of you know suck 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 whatever it is that they're being being put in their mouth um so so i think i think you can adapt it to anything if you want to if you think it's important enough so the other point I was going to make was um, about the diagnoses that we make and how we need to be really humble and honest about what the nature of these diagnoses that we're making. So sometimes we're making a very robust diagnosis made on clear 
pathological grounds. You know, cancer is the obvious example. Um, sometimes we're making diagnoses which are on slightly, you know, on the basis of, well, groups of children who have these kind of symptoms tend to have a similar approach, a similar response to this kind of management. And that's a very different kind of diagnosis. That is, you're not actually saying anything in that in those kind of diagnoses. I mean, even chronic constipation is one. What does chronic constipation actually mean? It just means you can't poo. Um, there's lots of different things that might be underlying that. So just, you know, just, just to say, and colic is a really good example, is there's a pattern of crying babies that happens at this kind of time of life um, seems to be more common in families that are under stress. It seems to be more common in certain you know, situations to do with the baby. We don't know what's happening. We don't exactly know. We can't tell you the precise nature of what is happening in your baby's um, tummy or whatever. I, don't, I just, I, I strongly suspect it's nothing to do with the tummy. But um, they, they, um, you know, we don't know what's happening. What we know is this group of children with this group of symptoms tend to respond to this management, but tend to is the key word there. And your baby is unique and different. And there are things that about your situation that we might be able to do something about, which isn't just focusing on this alleged pathology that's going on in your in your child's in your child's body. Because so you know, again, to go back to abdominal migraine, it it, it, it I'm not saying it doesn't exist. I'm just saying we don't really know what it is. Um, and being very aware of that and sort of shedding the kind of false false certainty that we're kind of pressured into having all the time as doctors um, is really important. Health inequalities is a big thing that you've done with your work previously, and I've heard you speak about it. Um, how does this model mm. fit in with health inequalities? Well, I think, I mean, I think in a way it, 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 it just... I think if you're not taking a biopsychosocial approach, you, you can't really understand the impact of health inequalities on health. It doesn't make any sense otherwise. So to take some example, to take an example, you know, you can't make sense of the effect of poverty on, uh, you know, levels of mental health, on physical health, on obesity, without thinking about how poverty affects your psychology, the how you how you make decisions. Um, and how you, um, you know, let's let's talk about obesity because obesity is a, a a now increasingly a disease of poverty. It, it is it is under control on most of the population. It is reducing in um, the more well off sectors of the population. So this idea that we have an, ob an, 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 an obesity epidemic is is actually misleading because it's it's it's. In fact, the, the groups which where obesity is, is, is increasing is just the low income families. So it is a disease of poverty. So the reason you can't understand why it's a disease of poverty unless you understand why poverty has those effects, why poverty reduces your motivation to have a good diet, why it reduces your access to exercise, why all of these things happen, but also how poverty traps you into helplessness and how the experience of, you know, low paid work, zero hours contracts disrupts your ability to have to run a family to cook the sorts of meals you would like to be able to cook. So so I think I think I think it's essential in, to, to, to have a model like this in order to understand why inequalities are important. And I think on a person, you know, on, a, on an individual basis, I sort of I don't necessarily ask people for their income levels. 
when I'm talk when I'm taking history. But I will ask them, where do they live? How many people are there? And does the child have their own bedroom? So sleep for exa is another example where you need to know about all of those things. You know, and if you're in obesity, you know, if you're in an obesity clinic, you can't even get started unless you know what the context is, what the what the situation is, where they go to school, what their what their what their access to exercise is like, are the streets safe? You can't talk about any of these things in any meaningful way apart other than you should eat less and exercise more, which everybody knows. <laughs> if you're going to say something that's actually useful, you've got to know the context. You've got to know what's actually going on for the family. So, I mean, I I, I don't understand in any of these kind of situations how you could go forward without at least having some of this stuff in your in your you know in your locker so with the, with that obesity example if you're looking at the kind of pro protective factors would you be kind of asking the questions you know why isn't why isn't the child more obese yes, than they are that's now exactly what, what kind of asking. things yes yeah and that's that's a really good example so why why have, why have we you know let's say for example the child has had some kind of intervention for obesity some kind of you know community workshop thing and it has stopped their bmi going up okay fine good excellent they're still obese they're still not controlled but all their bmi is still going up but it's stopped accelerating if you see what i mean um you know it's no longer exponential okay good why has that happened what is it that's happened about that you know do they get out when do they get out when do they exercise what you know has the, has a family recently managed to but to get the money together to buy the dining room table so they're actually eating together great so what's the you know how how is that happening and what and and, and how can you push that on um you know has mum lost a bit of weight is she now engaging with dietary advice and 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 kind of you know gone to weight watchers or whatever great let's move with that so you're absolutely right we must not forget because otherwise we just get so depressed. <laughs> um, the reason why taking biopsychosocial social approach is not depressing and helpless is because of that final row, the protective factors. What's great about this kid and this family? Because there's always something. So how, how do you explain the model to parents? I think it kind of comes naturally, really. I think, I think if somebody comes... I mean, I suppose it's difficult for me to answer that question because it's so ingrained. I'm like, I don't even explain it I just boom, it's just there but it, I think I think I think I think what I do when I'm talking to so I just explain how I do it in in, in my practice and I think it probably it may there may be kind of useful things to um to take for, to acute practice and please you know sort of tell me if there isn't I tend to start with the child and talking to them about their life I don't necessarily talk about their symptoms or their problems first I talk about their life what they like what they don't like what annoys them and actually that's just really helpful in saying okay well this is this is your life and and then you go well how does this problem that you've come to see me fit into that how does that how does that kind of affect you and just by making all of the discussion of symptoms about the effect on the child's life, inevitably it comes in. It just can't not. So if I've got a child who may have autism, you know, and I'm talking about, you know, what they like at school and they talk about the fact that they get bullied. Well, they, we're already talking about that. And, and, and so we've, we're already in a biopsychosocial place. We're not in a, an, in, in a kind of you know, counting off the symptoms kind of place. So I think that's one thing. And I think you can you can do that a little bit in acute because you can you can just start not from 
what seems to be the problem, but tell me about your life. <laughs> and I suppose that's I suppose that's a very simple thing. If people want a simple kind of take home, which they probably do, is that's the starting point. And therefore you don't you don't then have to go, well now I'm going to do a biopsychosocial aspect of this history. Because actually apart from anything else, that just that just makes it takes a long time. You just it's just your your starting point needs to be slightly different and then the rest of it will follow. This might sound silly, but would you ever use the 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 three by four yeah. boxes things? Do you get that with parents and say, "Look, the, these are some you can of these do if things, you're, or if you're is struggling it more of a conversational to, yeah. type thing?" If you're struggling to explain or to, to communicate to people how complex some of this stuff is, and say, so, "Well, isn't this just this?" Well, no, because and you don't have to do it in the box. You can you can like right, okay, so we've got the. Let's say we've got the constipation here. The constipation is a good example, isn't it? And I'm skipping around with my examples, but it just gives you the idea that this is pervasive. The constipation, you've got the, the difficulty pooing. OK, well, what's relevant? Well, he's scared of the toilets at school. So that's here. Is there anything else he's scared of? I'll well, write that there. OK. And then there's the fact that you're struggling with this and that you get, you know, you get quite frustrated with him. And, and, and going to the toilet has become a bit of a battle, hasn't it? It's become a bit of a conflict between you. So is there anything else that's a conflict between you? Oh, OK. He also won't eat any of the food. Oh, OK. Well, You've been trying to give him a better diet because he needs fibre, doesn't he? And he needs to drink, but he's, he's resisting that, isn't he? What else is he resisting? Oh, okay. He's got the sort of general pattern of oppositional behaviour, and he won't, you know, he won't, he kind of won't go to sleep either, and he's he's really just generally angry at you all the time. Why is, why do you think he's angry at you? Oh, okay, because you were beaten by his father when he was three, and and you've never really felt since then that you were a good parent, and you and by then they might be crying, but um, you know, it it, it doesn't. You can draw all this out. It doesn't have to be in a in a grid. You can just put it on a, mm. a bit of a bit of A4 blank paper and say, "All right, here's the central problem, which is the pooing. What's happening? What are the things that come? You know, what else is also relevant here? Just start drawing arrows and stuff. It doesn't won't look as neat as the table. It doesn't need to because what you've done is just basically come out of the central problem in the middle and looked at the rest of the stuff that's that's happening around it that's super that's that's a good kind of practical example what do you think are some like first steps that people you know for someone who's you know as you say most people are doing this to a degree uh, and understand that there are other things going on than what always meets the eye but um to take some practical first steps to make sure that you're doing the, the best thing for your patients um what are some tips you've 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 got the 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 grid itself and thinking about those aspects um are there, are there any other kind of real core things that we should just focus on i think i think that talking about this stuff as as um uh, as uh, as teams is quite important as in you know we need to we need to kind of decide whether we're interested in this stuff or not and if, because what often happens is that there's a couple of people who are interested in this stuff and they end up doing it all as other people just sort of say oh he's interested in that he'll do that or she'll do that and 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 actually sort of as a team it's quite helpful mm. to sort of say well it's not that we're trying to introduce a kind of audit tool or something we just need all to kind of agree that this stuff is important and and that we're going to embrace this mm. i think that local schools of pediatrics are really important here and i think one of the things that we've never quite got round to as a college is to support 
schools of paediatrics in running regular, you know, regular joint things with paediatric psychology or joint things with CAMS around the psychosocial aspects of medicine. I think everyone does it to an extent. Or, or, I mean, certain some 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 schools of paediatrics are dean. I keep calling them deaneries, but I'm not sure they strictly are anymore. Um, they, uh, you know, some some have, some have got a really good record here, but some we don't. Some some don't, and we don't. We simply don't know who is who is delivering this and who isn't. Um, if you're a pe- community, I'm going to do a little plug. If you're a community paediatrician, I do run an annual course for incorporating emotional behavioural aspects into community peds. And we are looking at reviving the previous courses for acute paediatricians who want to look more into sort of the mental health aspects. But this isn't mental health as such. This is, you know, everything. This is this is anything that's not the kind of biomedical stuff. This is this is much more fundamental. Um, so I think the, I think the first steps I think are to to maybe dig out a few. And I can provide some links to, to papers that we might have written in the past about how to kind of incorporate this stuff. Um, um, maybe pick a particular symptom or presentation that you are you find useful, sorry, that you find interesting, and just have a little think about what the the psychosocial aspects of it might be. So, for instance, if you're thinking of your neonatologist and you're thinking of the postneonatal feeding problems, or if you're a gastro, if you're a gastro person, think about recurrent abdominal pain. If you're an emergency person, think about well, actually, you know, the, the kids in crisis who come in, how can I approach these in a slightly different way? All of these, all of these symptoms, so, so connected to your own interests, but all of these presentations can benefit from a little bit of a broader, um, a broader um, uh, perspective. And you've touched on it briefly, but have you got any more, um, can you signpost us to any more resources that um, trainees can use so we can try and engrave this in our day-to-day practice now? Um, yes, um, there are things I will I will, <laughs> will have a look. <laughs> I will see, I mean, most of my work recently has been more on um, behavioural difficulties and neurodevelopmental conditions. So I've got quite a lot of writing I can plug those to you to about, about those issues, which are my core business um, day to day. And I kind of, I, since I don't feel qualified to talk about acute paediatrics anymore, that I don't have to, I've, I've sort of stopped talking about it. But if I look on the, if I look at the, the college um, the compass and uh, the, 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 the kind of college uh, learning environment, and there will be resources there that you'll be able to to kind of plug into in, in terms of in terms of um, understanding this this mo- the, the the kind of broader approach. But I think you're right. It's diff- I think I think one of the things that just occurred to me talking to you is that there isn't a single article or webinar on taking a biopsychosocial approach in pediatrics, and perhaps there ought to be. So maybe this is it. <laughs> Believe me, so this is a start anyway. Have you got any key take-home messages for us, Max? Anything that we can finish with? So, um, on a positive note, that we can think right. This is a moving forward. What can I do as an individual? I think I think thinking about psychosocial aspects is not about being a psychologist or getting lost in theory. It's about practical problem solving for this child in this situation. 
if you start from a slightly different starting point, as i.e., what's you know, tell me about your life, not tell you know what's not tell me about your symptoms. It very quickly, very organically, will be incorporated into your practice, and you may need to seek the support of your colleagues in doing in doing it in 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 kind of exploring some of this stuff. But it is ultimately going to make you a better doctor, I think, and more able to help your patients and make medicine in the long term more satisfying for you. So those are, those are my take on There's nothing to lose anyway, is there? What's there to lose from having trying different approaches? And um, I definitely have found myself, like you're saying, in emergency and speaking to these children and families in crisis, if you start with just, you know, because sometimes they're slightly disengaged and if you start with oh so tell me about what school you go to tell me about your you know it just is a, a foot in to then ha- actually have some meaningful conversations rather than just are you suicidal can I send you home you know it's actually you know you're not going to get the answers that you want or, or that you need they're not going to be honest truthful answers um and it's just it's, it's it is quite I think it is more emotionally straining um because you get into some of these deep problems that are going in with families and when you're taking your oh you've hurt your foot oh there there it's in a plaster um then you kind of not even you know engaging your brain about what actually might why might this family have more likely to be having a sprained ankle or or this behavior that they're having um so everything probably has you know an aspect of going into these things but yeah I do I do find that after you come out of a consultation where you have gone into a lot of detail you know when you start to realize about the inequalities and it, it's quite um it's quite it's quite draining I don't know almost saddening sometimes I think that's really true and actually I think it I think maybe more than the time and the training and and everything else the emotional it makes paediatrics and medicine a more emotionally taxing profession. It makes it, I think, more satisfying to be in, and, and I wouldn't kind of go back, but but it does. And I think one of the problems that we have is we've gone from a profession that basically does a biomedical model to one that is forced by partly by circumstance and partly by us acknowledging that these things are out there to a more psychosocial model um inevitably but we don't have the backup for ourselves the supervision that you know a psychologist will get supervision on a weekly basis to kind of talk through their own feelings about their work and we don't have that we're, we're behind on backing ourselves and supporting ourselves to do the emotionally demanding work of pediatrics and we're not there yet i think we're getting better we're certainly getting better than when i was training it's awful but um I think I think that's I think that's a really good point that the emotional labor of this which is genuine we're not ready for as a as a profession and we need to um uh, particularly I think there's been more of a focus on um colleague and our own well-being during pandemic and I think one of the key things is to continue that um over time and um, I just hope we can given ourselves protective factors yeah hmm. exactly Oh, thank you so much. That was so interesting. No problem. No problem at all. Yeah, I feel privileged to have listened to it firsthand. Yeah. <laughs> it's really, it's really good and really important, I think. 
Thank, thanks so much for talking. Could I, could I put a, a small plug in for something that yeah. I've started doing that might be of interest to people? So there is one other thing that I think pediatricians might be interested in that I'm up to at the moment, which is I've just started uh, with my daughter a podcast um, for uh, the stories of neurodiverse people and neurodivergent people. So people with ASD, ADHD, dyspraxia, dyslexia, whatever they identify as having. Because, and I think it's quite might be quite useful for pediatricians, particularly those who work with that group, those groups. But I think everyone, because everyone comes across these people, um, just to understand them and understand the different ways that brains can come out and how people's brains working in different ways has such an effect on on how they interact with things and how they interact with other people. Um, so it, it might be it might be useful for people to search extraordinary brains on whatever podcast provider they have. Um, we are struggling with Apple Podcasts at the moment, but it will eventually emerge into the light of day once they've managed to sort themselves out. So if people are interested, that's something that I've start, I'm starting up and, and, and feel very passionate about at the moment. And I just wanted to say thank you again to Max Davy for taking time out of his busy schedule to record that with us. I've certainly learnt a lot about the biopsychosocial model and will probably be starting a lot more of my consultation slightly differently now. And just a reminder to you all to go and have a listen to his podcast, Extraordinary Brains. We'll put a link to it up on our Twitter feed and on our website for you all. Anyway, that's all for this week. Thank you for listening to Dragon Bites.